maybe some some music that kind of represents like our Buddha, but also like. You just want to put your tacones on. I do. I want to <laughs> Selena dancing girl. Welcome to another episode of the Whiteness America podcast. My name is Tom Bell, and I'm joined by. My name is Josie Carmona. Joshua Trinidad. Josh Trinidad, aka. 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 Josh. <laughs> Good to see you two again. Look at it. We're, we're here. I think it's two weeks in between. That's better than last time. Yeah. yeah this is nice. Which is nice. Yeah. So tonight, um, we're going to talk about critical race theory and we're going to do this in a stretch of multiple episodes. So, so correct me if I'm wrong. Our plan is to introduce the topic tonight and kind of talk a little bit about our experience. And then we'll really start diving in over the next few episodes. One, um, I think partly to, to shift the narrative around critical race theory. Um, I think we all have, I I'm really Every time I hear someone start talking about critical race theory, even if they're an ally down in the trenches in the work, I have to shut it off because most of the time they say, well, critical race theory is history and we don't teach it in schools. And I'm just like, we need to change the narrative about what actually, why it's important, why it's actually a good thing to have in schools, right. why we should be using it. And it's not just history. I mean, we're, we're living present day, right? So um, I think that that's, that's part of it. So yeah, but before we get started, how are you? How are the two of you doing? What's new? I'm good. I, um, you know, work. Gasoline prices are going up. We mm. have this little thing called the Ukrainian invasion happening, which, yeah. which I think is, it's timely because, um, like you said, CRT. Oftentimes, people will say, "Well, you know, it's it's a." it's a function of talking about our nasty history in this country, right? The idea that slavery existed and it's not just slavery, right? It's any, um, any oppression, massacre, genocide that took place that in, you know, impacts black indigenous and people of color. Um, and so, yes, that is one piece that's really important. The acceptance of that, right? Just accepting that that is our history but also more importantly, that it still exists in major ways in our society. And I think that as I was watching the last couple of weeks, what has happened in Ukraine, clearly, even in times of war, we are still seeing that racism is alive and well. And even when people, humans are trying to escape um, and save their lives, there's still a systemic approach to even the ways that we um, we help people escape from a wartime. And so what has happened in the Ukraine and for many of the students of color, particularly African students and African people who live in Ukraine, how they were treated and thrown off of trains and buses. And once again, their race was highlighted, right? And the white supremacy that exists everywhere cannot be ignored. So I was, I was very upset about that. And, and it just, you know, highlighted the need for us to continue talking about things like CRT and race relations. So. Yeah. And it's interesting too, like when you think about what elevates to the surface of, I mean, obviously you have a major superpower, right? Like Russia, uh, 
using its force in a way and in, in, in doing whatever it can to decimate and dominate another country. Right. So, but it's interesting because my understanding is there's roughly 35 to 40 ongoing conflicts and wars happening on a regular basis with strikes and deaths and people getting murdered. It's innocent civilians that are being dragged into this, but yet there's a large focus on, on Ukraine, which is, it makes sense. I mean, it is a global affair and a lot of the other conflicts are more um, territorial or local, but still those don't get the national attention in the United States or the coverage um, and the atrocities aren't there. Right. And so, when you see folks pleading for how are we going to interfere, it's because of the whiteness potentially of, of Ukraine and the impact on the economic and, and, and the potential impact on our lives for whatever reason in the space. So it kind of has that interesting tension to it, which I think is um, problematic on some level, but the, the humanitarian part of me is like, oh, we need to do, something like there needs to be something to intervene in this you can't just have a bully running around right. doing things right so yeah you got you brought up a good point i had for not forgotten but also that was also something that i found interesting that you have all these countries who are opening their arms to ukrainian refugees whereas oh. you know we don't do that for palestinians or syrians or other people of color um and how it's clear right the system exists and it's so ingrained that I think oftentimes like in our media and the way that we portray these situations, we don't think twice about it, right? And then the interest convergence part of it all, right? right. We get to later, um, which is everybody complaining about their gas prices, um, you know, which makes this, it always brings it down to the individual as opposed to like the systemic nature of war, capitalism and racism and how it's at the root of all of that, um, which I found to be, or continue to find to be interesting um, that we, I think we are more willing as a country to be like, oh, we feel really bad, which I think we can hold these two truths, right? I still feel bad for Ukrainians, but I also notice the difference in the way that we treat refugees of color and countries. And we ignore the fact that we oftentimes are the big superpower um, who's bombing the shit out of these places. And nobody's talking about that. One thing I remember hearing when this all began was, and I I was like a TikTok, um, and it was a Mexican reporter talking about, you know, what was about to happen. And it was a voiceover of a Russian, like, it was like a Russian, like, kind of dateline or something. And and I guess Putin had once said, like, you know, we were the Soviet Union. Like, we were united. We were, we were a family. Like, this was all, it all belonged to us. Like, what happened? You know, like, how did this happen? And I guess, like, a Mexican reporter said something to him. And he goes, well, wouldn't you like to have your land back? He's like, how do you all feel about not having what was once yours and taken away from you? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I, I don't like that. So I was going to pose that question to you all. Like, in this situation, like, he's claiming unity for Soviet Union. Let's say that the Mexicans wanted to do something similar. It's, I've said this before when I have conversations with students about Palestine and Israel. Right. Because in essence, 
the Zionist movement was about like reclaiming of Jerusalem and saying to people who've been living there, like, this is no longer yours. Right. Right. I don't, honestly, I don't have an answer because I mean, it's all rooted in this toxic patriarchal, like masculine approach to taking things. Right. And I think it's all wrong. Right. Clearly there was a reason that, that, that Russia fell. Ukraine has established itself. There are small factions within Ukraine that are saying we want to be part of Russia. Right. And it's this, this desire to acquire and colonize and change that I have a problem with. So I don't think I could justify it in any sense of the world word, right? Like I would rather see us working for interdependence and in a more communal, like a communal approach to, to living amongst each other without borders, right? But that requires us to let go of ideas of supremacy and, and, and tribalism that says I'm better than you. And I only want to be with people who think, breathe, eat, drink, celebrate like I do, because we're going to focus on our difference as opposed to our, um, to our commonalities, right. To, to the things that we share in common. So I actually, I would never support the dom- the taking of land or dominating through war. Um, I don't think that there's a claim that anything belongs to one entity. Um, I believe in an approach where we have to learn to live with one another without borders. And that may sound very optimistic and utopian, but at the end of the day, if we go back to where we started this podcast recently and this idea of love, how can you possibly love when you're trying to take and take ownership of things? Then dominate in that. Dominate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, I, I agree, Josie. And I think that gets back to some of the pre-conversation we had before we started is oftentimes these things get pitted in a dualistic frame of this is the right way or this is the right way. There is no in between. And I think there's some, there's some want to possibly live in that gray space because, you know, in when the conflict in Ukraine first started and Russia first invaded, um, I had some conversations with some friends that were Ukrainian and Russian and they were like, you know, we're brothers. We're, you know, we, we live in different countries, but we see each other as brothers. Like we don't, we don't want this. And we're frustrated with our home countries independently for the way that they may have acted. And then, you know, on the Russian side, it was the same thing and frustrated with being associated with that push and dominance right so it's like trying to not get pitted into this us versus them mentality dualistic frame and and keep that connection piece but i think the longer this continues the more you will see things like when you i think there was a, a, a an athlete that had the z mark on their their jersey oh, at the olympics uh, at the af supporting um russia in 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 the war being pro-war um and i and i think you'll start seeing that tribalism and territorial framing start to creep out and eventually take hold in a way that's not helpful um 
if the narrative continues to go in the way it does. And, and, and I think the difference between what Josh posed with um, Mexico reclamation and, and tribal reclamation in the United States is that there is also a move to the propaganda machine in, in Russia is problematic, right? Like, so yeah. there's, there's a lot of misinformation that's being s- stated. And it's similar to what we saw here in 2020 and 2016 and, and now. Um, and, and that gets to our conversation about CRT. But first, we're going to take a quick break. And now back to our show. Um, which is, a, I guess, my segue, maybe, yeah. <laughs> into that. Yeah, yeah. But like, when you start to see news agencies like Fox News, you have the Heritage Foundation that are spinning what CRT really is to Sandy in the suburbs, telling her that she needs to fear this for her white kids because they're going to be harmed in school because they're actually going to learn about things that they're a part of then that's where that propaganda machine becomes problematic right and so i think i think we see that in all different facets and it's about power it's about dominance it's about taking taking over and then having the resources to to keep all of those things together so i'm really excited for this series and and really digging into this because obviously we all care about it because it's our research paradigm uh and it's the way that I think we all approach kind of our work and the world and being humans, but um, the more that we can, I think, shape the narrative uh, and not in a propaganda way, but shape the narrative about giving folks the tools to understand what critical race theory is and how it can be really useful for us navigating our racialized lived experience is important. So I think about a lot. um, I know Tom, you've been invited into my class and you talk about like the freedom that talking about race brings and the liberation that it brings for you as a white male and that your my liberation and your liberation are interconnected right and yeah. so i i when i really try and simplify because i mean we've watched all kinds of videos about you know what people are saying and what the propaganda machine says and ultimately i think that crt is an opportunity for us to keep open discussions about race and its systemic nature, but also to keep the dialogue open, recognizing that we will never truly be liberated as a group of humans, of individuals, of um, people in this world, if we can't talk honestly about race and racism and its systemic nature of oppressing BIPOC individuals, you know, and, and I see it, if I'm going to connect it to like my work in Chicana feminist epistemology and really thinking about Ansaldua's work on liminal spaces and this opportunity to create multiple understandings and narratives where we don't have to have truth or false, or it's just information that helps us better connect and create that community that's why i love crt because i think it opens the door for us to do that yeah it's definitely not something to be feared i think the thing that's interesting though is that in preparation for these conversations i started going through all of my literature review and writing that i've done on this and 
one of the things I found uh, was this this statement that uh, I wrote in uh, my dissertation, uh, citing two two authors, Terrell and Leary. The United States is so uh, is a society obsessed with discussing and not directly with both discussing and not discussing directly race. A and then B, and it's often cloaked by white folks in the myth of color evasion, right? So when you think about how we we're race obsessed as this country, white people are, and and, and I I you know we 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 but but we don't we cloak it in this. For those that are not the um, KKK folks, racists, it's the suburban white folks that are race obsessed, but in a, in a way that's trying to cloak it in this, I don't see race framing, right? And both of those pieces were written 15 to 20 years ago, and they're still prevalent today with how we, we do this. And so what I like about critical race theory is that it it challenges those notions of, of cloaking color, our, our, our lens in, in a color evasive way and gives you some tools, practical tools to understand that racialized experience, right? Because I think one of the things that really resonated with me in our last conversation with Josh talked about how do we take our theory to action and doing the action work because we spend a lot of time in the theory. And I think that that's one of the downfalls of DEI work and uh, diversity work over the uh, you know last 20 years it's individualized and it's theoretical we don't talk about the action and i think what critical race theory does is gives you gives you a framework for how to do that in a critical way and how to have some action in understanding also expectations uh, because of the pervasiveness of race yeah that's what i was just thinking too is i, I think for the last two decades of my career um I've lived in theory so, so comfortably that as of recent, you know, doing some of the work, especially around diversity and inclusion, it's like, okay, you know, these things now, how do you, how do you bring them to the forefront for action? Like, how do you create that, that systematic change? Like, where's that first step? And I find myself always just kind of like stutter stepping, like, wait, 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 you know, this stuff. And, and, and then as I start to lean in more to like what critical race theory is, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's so easy to, it's like a, for me, it's like a blueprint, right? It's more of a blueprint than it is um, anything else, because then we have folks like, and we're going to get to Yoso's work here in a little bit, but, you know, Dr. Terry Yoso does such a good job of really like unpacking CRT and making it a model that gosh is like multifaceted and, and like multi-instrumental across pk24 plus community responsiveness and so for me i think i i love that challenge though i love like sitting at my desk and saying okay now how are you going to change systematically or what are you going to start to begin to dismantle because you're always about dismantling josh so let's see you do the shit now what are you going to do like, what are you going to put together? What are you going to have people read? What are you going to have people reflect on? What are you going to have people try to change in their day-to-day work? I'm like, shit. Yeah, uh, uh, hold on a minute, you know, but that, you know, I don't want to echo that, that CRT does give us that opportunity to begin to do that dismantling work. Without it, we're just shooting, we're just shooting bows in the dark, right? Arrows, bow, bows and arrows in the dark at each other. 
Yeah. I, um, I don't know if I shared this last time, but there's, there was always a saying my mom and dad used to say, um, con aviso no hay engaño. Uh, and I wrote that in my dissertation with, with, um, notification, I guess the literal clumsy translation is like with notice or notification, there can be no betrayal. Mm. The way I see CRT is that it took me through a process where I understand the system now. I get it. This is systemic, right? I do not hold that social inoculation that I'm not going to be treated differently because of this, my, because I don't hold whiteness as an identity, right? I may in some circles have light enough skin for people to question whether or not, but I've had multiple experiences that teaches me that at the end of the day, I'm a brown Chicana. And that when I open my mouth and tell my story, it's very clear that I am not an assimilated white person, right? I may carry whiteness within me and the government assigned me whiteness, right? Through the census, right? They said, technically I'm white, but I carry a indigenous and mixed race identity. And so for me, the idea that if I understand what's going to happen, what CRT helps me understand is that I can give my counter narrative, right? And I can resist these structures. And at the very least, as Derek Bell says, and I'm not quoting him entirely here. So, but he talks about that, like racism is never going to be eradicated, right? But the best that we can do is do our best to create the environment and situations and circumstances where, you know, black indigenous people of color can have better experiences and learn how to navigate and resist those systems of oppression, right? And work towards dismantling them with the ultimate goal of liberation, right? And and so that's what I think is most valuable in terms of operationalizing it. Yoso did a fantastic job of showing us like, okay, so you've been told historically that you are inferior because of your race, that you don't have any cultural, any, any capital, social capital, right? And in that cult, community cultural model, she talks about, yes, indeed, especially in my community in Chicano, Brown, Mexican-American communities, Latin, Latinx communities, that we carry, right, navigational capital. We carry linguistic capital. So my ability to speak two languages shouldn't be seen as a deficit. It should actually be seen as an asset. Um, that I have the ability that historically I have like a history of resistance and revolution within me. And so those things are celebrated instead of being seen as negative, stereotypical, bad things, right? Again, in this binary, like if you're not assimilated, then you must be on the bad side. And that was a ramble. Sorry, but I just got a little passionate about that. I think you're muted. I am. Man, I've been doing this for four years or whatever. I don't know how long I've been on Zoom, but it feels like four fucking years and I still don't know how to unmute myself. Um, What's really interesting, and and I think we should get into the tenants in a minute because I think that that will help folks understand, but one of the misnomers that I hear is that, and and this is what is getting propagated both by the Heritage Foundation, fuck them, um, and uh, Fox News, fuck them. And uh, sorry, I'm... I'm a little pissed off right now. <laughs> and I just want to own that explicit uh, little letter on our 
podcast too. Uh, so I'm just gonna say fuck one more time, so that way. But but uh, I think I think one of the things that is a big misnomer is that criti- critical race theory blames white people. And so I'm gonna read you something, and I think I I sent this to you. There was a resolution. This is one of the resolutions that's circulated oh. in by the one of the counties that is north from where I live. It's actually the county where Flint, Michigan is, is in. Um, it's the GOP. And it says one of the whereas statements, whereas critical race theory assigns generational guilt and racial guilt for conduct and policies that are long in the past. Right. So what they're trying to do in this statement is is to build fear around for white people to say what critical race theory is going to make your, your kids do. And what you do is you're going to feel guilty for the fact that you um, may or may not have had relatives that had slaves, or you may or may not have been had relatives that fought on the wrong side of the civil war, or you may or may not have been someone that have relatives that upheld Jim Crow, or you may or may not have been relatives who were a part of anti-civil rights, or you in present day were problematic, you know, upholding the pro pro police, um, anti BLM, like that, that framing is, is problematic because it's not just about assigning guilt, right? Like I can't make anyone feel guilty. You feel guilty yourself because of the situations and what's going on in your brain. I'm just going to present you the information as it is as fact and historical truth and the present day the narratives, right? So like if Josie, your narrative or Josh, your narrative as a person of color make me feel guilty, that's on me to figure out, not on you, right? And so I think that that's the thing is that we don't let folks of color take space to share their narrative in a way that is effectively heard by white people in this country. And I'm not saying that that's on you, it's on the systems. And anytime folks of color are effectively taking space to share their narrative, white folks shut it down quick. And so I think that that's something that people don't want to hear. They don't want to be discomforted. And what critical race theory does is it gives those counter narratives. It takes that space. Um, and that, that creates discomfort. And that's part of the thing is that, you know, when, particularly when you get in the Midwest, you have Midwest nice, and it, and it and it challenges that and pushes that. And so I think um, that's something that I think is a, is a huge misnomer about critical race theory that I think we, we can kind of dig into. But I'm curious about your reactions to that and thoughts. Um, well, it, it brought up, and I wrote about this earlier um, because I was sitting there thinking, like, I keep hearing this argument. This is to make my kids feel guilty and we didn't own slaves. And I would agree hundred percent that it, anytime I give a current counter narrative about how I experience racism, people shut down and say, well, that wasn't me. And I'm sorry you were injured by that. But the reality is, is that if it's still existing, then, and if you're willing to hear both sides, right. Cause I've also heard, can we hear both sides? Well, I grew up in a system where I only heard one side and, and I shared this in my writing When I was in the sixth grade, we learned about the Alamo and you can imagine my professor um, used traumatic language, right? Like really ugly language to describe Mexicans and, um, you know, liken them to savages and deserving of getting their ass kicked, right? And 
and and didn't tell the story from you know uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, yeah. um, the single story, right? She says in her podcast or in her TED talk, you know, it depends on where you start the story, right? So should we start the story about the Mexican-American War by saying Texans didn't want to stop slavery, right? And that's why Mexico went to war with them. Or do we start with the Alamo? And 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 really, of course, in Texas history, and I grew up in the Texas panhandle, we started with the Alamo to justify, right? To justify what we were doing. And I remember still being in the sixth grade, just sliding further and further into my chair as they spoke. And that was the day they reminded me, right, that it doesn't matter how hard I work, because I worked really hard not to speak Spanish. I worked really hard not to be show up as Mexican. I worked hard to be assimilated. It didn't matter. My classmates and my teacher didn't care about how I felt in that moment when they were describing Mexicans during the Alamo. And so, you know, I didn't have the tools back then, right? My parents, you know, I never told them about this. I just sucked it up and kept going until later in life. And so the question I just have for people is like their very argument supports the idea that we live in a white supremacist system that says my child's whiteness affords them special treatment, because how dare you make them even learn about a history that's so flawed? How dare you? And we're just going to ignore it. We're going to act like it didn't exist, even though we have statues erected all over this country in the South, um, you know, highlighting Confederate, you know, heroes. I don't know if I want to use the word heroes. I ask myself, like, when are we going to say that students of colors, their narrative, their history, their feelings, their emotions, they also deserve to be heard in a space that pushes all of us to say, why did this happen? And how can we stop it from continuing to happen? I mean, there are still 723 Confederate statues that are up, right? Like, so I get really hot over this. Like, as I shared with you all, I was facilitating that conversation last night in Flint uh, with a friend of mine. And by the end, I was really riled up. And, uh, and I feel like that's going to happen again, <laughs> because this is super important. Because I don't, we're, we're never going to have a racial reckoning in this country unless we embrace things like critical race theory. Otherwise, we'll just continue to maintain the status quo. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. The whiteness is, the whole purpose of whiteness is to maintain the status quo. So, I don't know. So, I mean, if we're going to talk about the tenets of of CRT, right, that's the very first one, is accepting of that racism exists. It existed and it continues to exist, right? Right. Um, I mean, that's central. I think that first tenet is where we find the most resistance is because, you know, I, I don't know how many sessions now I've had in like just the DNI space where f- white folks automatically are telling me, I don't like to be vilified. I've actually heard that multiple times in multiple spaces with white folks. I don't like to be vilified. And I said, okay. I said, what makes you feel like you're being vilified? And it's like, well, all those things we've done wrong in the past, you know, I don't like to bring those things up. I said, you know, how can we 
how can we uh, how can we you know fix something or begin to heal if we can't bring up what's wrong? I mean, let's just break it down to its most simplest thing. Um, and he's like, "Why well, didn't do that?" This is a this is like two, three or two or three different dudes that I was talking about or talking with, and they all kind of said similar things. And what they were saying was, "I don't like a framework that vilifies my my heritage." And they said, imagine if there was one that vilified yours. And I said, yeah, it's called racism. <laughs> and they were like, well, we can go in circles here, dude. So I'm just let you sit with that. And so again, the fragility with all this uh, is is real. And it's not, look, I even, I even hate the fact that we have to use the word fragility with white folks. Like I'm already past that. Like, I don't care if you're fragile. <laughs> Like we're gonna have to move on with this because we didn't get that that space and time as people of color to be fragile with you know the last thousands of years with what's happened with us. And so sometimes I, I throw people into boiling water in my trainings and, I, and do I feel bad after? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I actually think that's what actually helps folks grow a little quicker um, in some of the work that I've been doing. And so, I'll ask you all this, like in some of the work that you all do in conversations with, with white folk, how do you break down that, that first tenant? Like where do they actually realize the challenge is that, that it's the fragility have, that's standing in the way white of America that first have tenet. individualized everything. And so in, in the construct, when you think about racism, it's individualized too. So I can operate on a daily basis, not use the N word, be nice to people of color, donate to a charity or some organization that focuses on youth of color and say, I'm not racist on an individual level, right? Not really understanding or recognizing all the things that I participate in or take part in or advantage from are based on a system of that's designed around race and in my racialized experience. The fact that I ignore race in my racialized experience is in of itself of propagating and perpetuating that system. And so I think one of the things that I try to do is to have folks start with the system level, which is really sticky and difficult, but it allows them to, to stand away from it a little bit. So then they can say, oh, the system's fucked up. And then, and then you ask the question, how do you participate in the system? Not, not in a way to try to make them feel guilty, but so they can see their complicity, complicity. Um, and how they're complacent in that. And because I think one of the other things that I've learned about working with humans is that no one likes to be considered complacent. <laughs> and so when they start to see things are fucked up and they realize how fucked up they are and they realize that it's harming people that they care about and that they're complacent in that, then there's a little bit more of that interest convergence to do something. And some of that is that self-work. But the hard part is, is that if there's this want to continually live in that individualized frame, which white folks are afforded to live both as individuals and have ethnic identity when it's convenient for them and have individualization and have other identities that are group identities when it's convenient for them, like being an American and being patriotic when it's convenient for them and then come back to the individual. So we're allowed to transition in and out of those spaces all the time, whereas folks of color never are. Right. And so I think that those are the things that like, really start to challenge this first tenant in a, in a training way of how do we make sense out of it? But that's, that's, that's my approach. It's not always successful, but um, yeah. I don't know, Josie, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I would do this. I do the same, but I also add, I use Dr. Nolan Cabrera's um, work on white immunity. And I've actually had some success from students. Um, he was a terrible guest on this show. Terrible guest. <laughs> actually, we should see, we should see if Nolan will come back and maybe talk uh, in one of our crit specials. We should, because I think, I think he'd be happy to hear that I've had students say to me, like, you know, because the argument is always individual, right? I don't have privilege. I worked really hard. And I think he does a really nice job of elevating the conversation to the system. I also use a couple of films, um, uh, Race as an Illusion, to really set the framework, the historical context of how the systemic nature of racism has precluded, um, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color from accessing, like, home loans and business loans and the way that the economy works, the way that we did redlining, the way that um, student school choice is also another way for white folks to choose to take their kids out of more diverse schools, how we do school funding. Um, it's a really nice film to just set the expectation where how the goalposts continue to move in this country related to race. But, the, but at the core, when I've had pushback, particularly from white males, they will, just like when, when I talk about gender, they'll say, well, that's not me, right? I ask them to self-reflect. I ask them like, you're getting really upset about this. And so I'm going to ask you to like, really think about what is causing you so much anger. And I want you to write about it or think about it and really think about why you would want to keep me a woman of color from accessing the same, you know, access to privilege that you have. Right. And that has actually worked in some cases. I've had some situations where I've had some pretty bold white males stand up and tell me off and tell me, you know, that I don't belong in a classroom, right. Further demonstrating their privilege, right? And their whiteness and their supremacy, right? Because here's this brown Chicana telling them about something that is making them feel threatened, right? Because at the end of the day, I'll ask questions like, why would it threaten you for me to have the same access to the privileges that you have? And I want you to sit with that. And you don't need to tell me, I don't want to know, you don't need to justify yourself to me, but I'd like for you to think about it. And that helps too. Love that. I love that you position yourself in that way um, because it makes it tangible in the moment. I always wonder this, and I want to, I, I, I just want to pose all these questions to you both because it's just so relevant to like things happening right now with my work. But do you think that in those moments of opposition where we feel that resistance that you possibly are planting a seed though? Do you ever, do you ever think like, optimistically about some of those like confrontations where it does get heated that, you know, maybe this fool will go home, have a bowl of cereal and really think about this shit. You know? I hope so. I hope it creates at some point, some dissonance. Um, I've had people come back to me and write me emails that I knew like 10 or 12 years ago and be like, Hey, I always thought you were an asshole. And then I thought about the things that you said, and now I want to say I agree with you and thank you for planting that seed, right? And so um, you both know I can be an asshole. And like, I know that's not always the most effective method, but like I was younger then, um, I had more hair. 
Uh, you just get ha- you get hangry. But you sometimes. also carry but you also carry an identity of whiteness, Tom. And yeah. so there are things that Tom can do that I clearly oh, cannot yeah. do as a woman of color, right? Mm-hmm. And I recognize that I, I, I'm pissed as hell about it still, right? Because I think we I, I question, right? Immediately I'm abrasive, I'm I'm considered, you know, angry, aggressive. If I were to come at people the way that I think Tom could potentially come at someone mm. right, in his white male identity, um, I have chosen to be very careful in the way that I show up because of the potential ramifications, right? So I'll get reported in a heartbeat if a white male, they're going to put me in my place, right? PhD and all, they're going to show me that I can't, as a woman of color, tell them anything about their experience because they carry that white power, right? And so I've just decided that I can't, I no longer can, can get caught up in that because the goal is to plant a seed. The goal is to plant the seed of self-reflection. The goal is to plant a seed of love and, and this concept of interdependence. That's my goal, right? That we're going to transgress as bell hooks has said, we're going to create, create change through love. So I hope that that's what I'm doing. I have received a lot of great uh, feedback, mostly from students of color who say, I just appreciate you giving me the opportunity to tell my story because you're the first class that I've been in. And this is like a junior level class that has said that my story is important. That, That makes me sad that they have to go to college, pay for a class to find reassurance that their story is important and it matters we're going to take a quick break we'll return back to our conversation in just one minute and now back to our show let's let's jump to the to counter storytelling and counter narratives as the, the next tenant to talk about them because i think that that to me like that is one of the most important tenets and it's also the the way the research gets done right so this is why like for example my research and me being a qualitative researcher i don't use critical research as race theory as the methodology as the method because one not being a person of color and two my focus is on white folks there is no counter narrative but the counter narrative is so important and, 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 and it's critical to this because it, it is taking that space. We talked about taking space last time. It is, it is a theory that gives and takes that space for folks of color to share that story. And what pisses me off about people shutting crit down is that it is another way to silence those counter narratives. It is another mechanism to say, I'm sorry, Josie, your story is not important. I'm sorry, Josh you're a great musician. You can keep performing, but don't talk to me about your experience as a racialized human being in the United States. Right. Like, so I think that those are the, those are the things that I think are, are incredibly important about this particular tenant is that, that counter storytelling piece. Yeah. And I think this is where as educators, when we operationalize this theory, it's about how we show up in the classroom. Right. So if my sixth grade teacher had been trained under CRT and had gone through an opportunity to self-reflect, 
then could he have presented the Alamo from truly a multiple lens, right? Like telling multiple sides of this story that didn't just start with the Alamo, right? Which was the propaganda machine to justify why we took all this land and killed all these Mexicans, right? And and again, it justified the war. It justified the taking and dominating of people. Um, And then it later also was used to justify why we treated Mexican children in the state poorly, right? Why we had, you know, all of these cases in this country where Mexicans were trying, Mexican children were trying to access equal education, right? And this is where I think that the counter narrative is so critical to the way we train teachers. And it's important to your work, Tom, right? So even though you can't do your, you don't do your, not can't, but you don't do your research taking on that counter narrative piece, it's a good way for you to train white teachers who mostly teach in urban settings with students of color that that they would encourage a counter narrative, that they would be open to that. And and that's like the beautiful piece about CRT. And that's why I love the Ladson and Billings book, which really operationalizes CRT to do it well in the classroom, right? So the first step is we got to accept it. We have to say it's systematic, but then how do we move forward? How do we create those great environments for students of color to not sit in that classroom and slouch down because they feel like their ethnicity, their identity is being attacked by their teacher, the person who's supposed to love and care for them, you know? Yeah, I, I, I think that's such a good point. And I think about that in application. I mean, we talk about theory and something that I've, I've started at, at one of my jobs I work, because I work like nine different jobs, um, is I started a podcast. And it's, it's to bring the counter narrative forward. But that's not the way that the organization knows it. They think that we're, we're showcasing um, employees' stories. But what I'm actually doing is bringing stories from the trenches, from the front lines, which is mostly folks, people of color and women that work at this particular job and um, and been showcasing their stories on a podcast. And what's happened now is like our senior leadership level, which is mostly white people are listening to this podcast going like, is this the same organization I work at? Because I didn't think it was like this, you know, and... <laughs> It's not the way I understand it to be, you know, and, and what it's now it's happening. It's actually opening up conversations of like, I had no idea, you know? And so the, what's powerful about the counter narrative, even in its application that it can exist in organizations that one, it provides like the opportunity. And I think, you know, to kind of go back to like that vilified like stance is like, you know, this is more welcoming, like somebody's willing to share a story. And if you're willing to listen and, and then, really think about it critically and say like I can step into this world with you like let's talk about your story like that that I found has been very powerful um specifically at one of my nine jobs but um you know that's something I'm going to continue to do specifically with this podcast that I'm doing is bringing those stories forward because I think it's informing for an organization to hear and I think that would be interesting I think to hear on many fronts like I wonder what it would be like if we interviewed 
students on a podcast, you know, right? And they were to talk about their experience and like their educational journey. And we played that podcast for like educators in a room, you know, because, you know, a lot of that, like you said, just gets, you know, unheard or kids just kind of slump and they, but I just found the podcast to be powerful. It like elevates their story and like digitally. So I don't know. That's something I've been trying and it seems to be working. I have the, uh, I don't know if I shared this with the two of you, but there's a group of students that um, are in our MBA program at the university I work at. And they started this, this innovative kind of counter narrative. It's called plucky comics. And what they do is they take historical figures that were black queer folks and turn them into superheroes and, and they're marketing oh. it. Their market is to give it to social studies classes and in literature classes to talk about, you know, folks from the past that, you know, they, they're, they're, gender or sexual identity was never discussed and their racial identity was never discussed. Right. So like really bringing that to the forefront and sharing that as a counter narrative and introducing that because I, you know, that, that, that is critically important. And I, and I think it's super innovative to use comics as a way to do that and to, to lift that as a, like those folks as superheroes, particularly because of the time period in which they're probably referring to them. Right. So um, yeah, I just think it's really unique and and how their their approach. And I'd love to have them on the show sometime to talk a little bit about w- their work behind that. And I know a lot of it comes from they them like the I think the founder is a black queer person, and they're like I never saw people like me in school. I I never saw anyone that had my story or I could relate to. And so trying to give that to kids today, I think, is incredibly important, particularly when you have shit going on in Florida, um, where they're just yeah. Don't get me started on that. So, oh so. man. Yeah. <clears throat> so, and that I think is a good transition to the next, uh, another tenant, which is intersectionality, right. uh, which is incredibly important in this is really understanding that, you know, we all operate in, in, in experience the world with multiple identities, but the construct of intersectionality um, really uh, framed by Dr. Crenshaw uh, kind of puts race in the, bottom of that and then builds everything on top of that as a way to kind of understand the the layers of oppression or the layers of immunity that one experiences uh in this country so i think that that's an important piece of this is is um understanding that we are multifaceted multi-identity individuals and that our racialized experience is also impacted by our other identities that we carry yeah i think the only thing i would add because i think we should do an entire show on intersectionality is that from a legal perspective, this was brilliant because of the way the yeah. legal system works and its ability to be like, okay, are you gonna hold your black identity or are you gonna hold your female or woman identity, right? Your gender identity. Yeah. And we can't say that those, those two things matter. And so, um, and that they both equally impact your ability to access equity, right? And justice. Um, through the legal system. And so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I think, Josh, you mentioned earlier this idea like of elevating voices, of showcasing. It's one of the best ways. And this is where I find that real like fuck you kind of feeling about counter narratives and the whole process of dismantling this system. It is the best way to say, 
fuck you. I, I made it through K through 12, never hearing a story about me or someone who looked like me, but now I'm going to take the space that I deserve yeah. and I'm going to tell my story and I'm no longer going to allow you to minimize my identity and my story is not valuable or legitimate. And that to me is like, you can't even put a price on what that means to someone who finally gets to, to share their story. Right. Because what, you know, in the past we would say things like, Oh, we want to help give, give voice to people. It's like, no, I've always had a voice, bitch. Right. Yeah. I've always had a voice. Your system has not allowed me to take up my space and for right. you to hear my voice because you don't want to hear me. Right. So I'm going to use the explicit we are, we are on fire today. We're on total <laughs> fire today, but that's this how I feel about it. Lit. It's the most empowering feeling to be like, this is my experience and I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm not going to be ashamed because of what I eat, how I dress, what, what music I listen to. This is me. And if you want to say that you live in a colorblind society, then that's on you. If you want to keep being delusional but you can't act like you don't see me and see all of me. Right. You got to see all of the pieces of me. Right. Well, and you can't ignore that race exists and you can't ignore that gender exists and you can't ignore that sexuality exists and you can't ignore that varying abilities exist. Like we all, we, there is difference, right? Like when we right. see those things. And one of the things I, I think is really interesting, you know, Crenshaw has that talk, that TED talk where she talks about, you know, has people stand up and, and goes through the black men that have been mm-hmm. and, and then yeah. the black women, right? Yep. One of the things I think is really interesting is you have um, the the woman basketball player, player, Brittany Griner, I think that's how you pronounce her last name, who is detained in Russia, right? So this is a story. It's getting some press. Imagine if that was fucking LeBron James. Right. Right. People would be losing their goddamn exactly. mind but it's a woman, a woman of color. And and immediately there was questioning, well, why was she there? Right. So then there were people justifying, well, because Russians pay more than what she earns here. And it's like, does it fucking matter why she's there? Right. She's a human who deserves that her story be heard. And it's fucked up that they did this. Right. Can it be as simple as that? But because she's a black woman, we're going to blame her for why, right. She's there. Right. Or I guess I shouldn't have used LeBron James. Let's let me go further. Let me imagine if it was John Stockton. I don't know any current white male basketball players. Uh, Jokic, come on. <laughs> the Joker. I don't, I'm not I don't even really watch. I'm not even going to try and attempt to act like I know any white basketball players because that's not my jam. But yeah. Hey, that was a double entendre. I know. <laughs> And I didn't even mean to. It's <laughs> not my gym. <laughs> sure, I'll get some. Uh, we'll get some hate tweets from that. But uh, I just think it's, uh, yeah, yeah. So, well, um, this was good. I got to release a little bit of anger there. You know, <laughs> yeah. My aggressive Chicana, you know, personality, right? Because that's all I can be. That's all you are. Right. Super one dimensional. Yeah. You know, I, I honestly will say this though, that I I do agree with you though, Josie, that, you know, the, the counter narrative is so powerful that 
I mean, it's like, I don't know how to even explain it. It's like showing a painting or listening to a song and saying like, let's listen to this or let's, let's look at this piece of art. You can't change the way in which that art is presented. Like you can't go and like, and you shouldn't <laughs> unless I don't know. There are some people that do, you know, go there and like touch up some spots and cover over some things. It is what it is. And you have to accept it for its genuine presentation. And, you know, I always, I always look at these stories as kind of pieces of art. It's like, it's standalone as it says so much and it provides folks, I think an entry point. I think it's a great entry point to begin to like self-reflect because again, through this intersectionality work, you begin to say like, how, how, how do I exist in the same space with these individuals? You know, how do I, what is my life experiences? You know, what is it, what makes me so superior in my head? Like, what have I been taught? Um, no, it's such a good point. And I, the sooner we could teach our kids that the better. Yeah, I, I love that you said that because I think that um, like that's the point, right? You, If you don't like music or art, really the question is on you. Like, why don't I like it? What is it in me that is like, that is being reflected in this piece of art that I'm not jiving with, right? Or that I'm not yeah. like enjoying, but that becomes my responsibility in my work. And, and it's easy for me to be like, you know what, Josh, you like that painting. I don't, but I'm not going to try and discourage you from liking it. And yet when it comes to human interactions, we want to make a value call on people's experiences. And if they don't match us, then we are quick to be like, they're bad. We don't want them. We're going to focus on the difference or we're going to ignore right? We're going to marginalize. And I think that's the sad part. And that's where we lose um, our ability to find true interdependence, right? And love, right? There is no love there. The, and and I, I do that to also my students and say, if this is upsetting you so bad, why is this story like making What's, you so angry? Yeah right? You can't have love for me or your fellow human being. If you're feeling this much anger and fragility and defensiveness. So go do some self-reflection, right? Right. I encourage people to find their spiritual connection, whether that be through their religiosity, their spiritualness, whatever their practice is for them to really think. Cause I think it shocks people, right? When you're like, Whoa, you're getting like, pretty angry there right i know why i get angry i can point to the reasons oh I'm yeah me angry. too I've been mostly really my mom hard, right yeah yeah <laughs> usually it's my mom's just attitude <laughs> i just think about her and i'm like oh no just kidding <laughs> no you're right you're you're 100 right you know like um i was just thinking too that i don't know how many times that's happened to students where it just gets to that boiling point i'm like why whoa like that this is this is a stopping point for you you need to acknowledge what's going on you need to reflect on this because yeah let's breathe yeah really trying to like pull in 
that love energy so that we can get to some understanding. And it just, it's not, I don't, I don't fool myself into thinking that that's going to work for everyone, right? Not everyone is, is motivated by that, but what it does do it, it helps shock a person when they're just like, and so I have, I, I've only had a few negative incidents as of late in the last three or four years. Um, but but I, I love the power of the counter narrative. I love the power of CRT as opening the door and keeping op- doors open because the only way we're ever going to achieve understanding is through continuous dialogue. Yep. Yep. I think so, Paulo, Fre- Paulo Freire says it best. He said, you, you can, if you, you cannot teach the children, if you do not love the children. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. Like even like I always come back to that quote because it always hits me at different points and even like now like this conversation versus a one that was completely different like a couple of months ago I still keep coming back to that quote of his that you know you cannot teach the children unless you love the children and his emphasis is on that love piece and I'm like damn that is the fucking truth yep. you know sorry I said fuck again okay oh well we're owning that e today. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I wonder, I don't know if you, 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 uh, if either of you have seen this, this study and this work, but when it comes to folks getting angry in situations, and I'm really glad that you use the, the framing of like, Hey, you need to go reflect on this. But I think, I think what happens and, and, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about my own experience, like where I was at points or when I'm at points where I, I kind of shut down even still like on, on things where I'm like, Oh, you know, my, my fragility shows up. Right. And when you are in a trigger space, cause I'll, I'll even say it's probably a triggering space for, for white folks to converse about race because we're taught not to, um, you can't do anything of thought for 20 minutes. So like there's this brain research that was done and, and, and when they look mm. at the brain and when you are in a space of triggering, you go into flight or flight and you can't make rational decisions. You can't think in a con- constructive way for 18 to 20 minutes. And so if, if you're starting off that conversation and that person who is having a difficult time grasping what you're talking about is triggered, they're only going to react in the angry space because they're fighting. And so if that's the only space white people enter this conversation in because of the, the first tenet of realizing racism is permanent and it's here and it's you know part of our history and part of our society, we have to find ways to get through that with them. Or let me let me rephrase that. I need to find ways to get through that with them because that's you know a large part of, of my lift on this. So so that's a great reminder, Josh. So I, I always write. I always write it on the board. Like anywhere that I, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach or facilitate something. I always write it somewhere as like somewhere for me to look at. You know, even in those moments of opposition, like we had talked about earlier, I'm like, this is only gonna be as like productive as much as love as I can bring to this space. And like, yes, like I want to disrupt, and disrupt can disrupt can be love, right? It's just I I'm trying to find that that art it's, it's an art and in a, in a framework mixed in one to do so and i think that that's where like that's where like the true magic happens if you can make dismantling like an action of love 
which I have not mastered. No, I mean, I think it's hard, right? Because we, we are flawed individuals who come with a traumatic experience and it's multiple, right? It builds up and the expectations for me to continuously show up strong and poised and loving mm. in the face of hatred and anger and ugliness, um, it takes its toll on us, right? And right. it's not easy work and it's not meant for every conversation. And so we negotiate when we're able to, to, to have these tough conversations. Um, and I think that Yoso's work helps us start to see that, right? And we can talk more in another, I'd like for us to do just something on Yoso's work. Yeah. This idea, because I think in my dissertation, I talk about the concepts of navigation, negotiation, and resistance. And I yeah. think that what that really highlights is that people of color, Black, Indigenous people of color, consistently have to negotiate their race in ways that white people do not. And so if we could get more allyship amongst white people to actually have these conversations with us, that lifts the burden of the labor off of this community who continuously faces aggressions related to their race. Right. Right. We can talk about racial fatigue in another episode. Yep. We got lots of episodes. Yeah. Topics. Good. <laughs> well, racism's not going away. We we said that at the front end. So we we will continue this. Uh so I think I think we're gonna get the other tenants at the next the next crit special that we do. Um and so any final thoughts before we close up for today? Kids something prolific to say, but I don't. I think you said a lot of prolific things in the last yeah. Time. Yeah. Why don't you just chill out? Okay. I think I just yelled fuck. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's a good. Well, thing. I will end this like we ended the last one. I love, love you guys. I love uh, you too. Love and you I too. wish you all a good rest of your week. Yeah. Thank you.